Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that in this episode you'll hear some, well, how can I put it, colourful language. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode I'm joined by one of the country's finest stand-up comedians. She's performed sell-out shows around the world and is a regular fixture on our radios and televisions and she's now turned her hand to fiction with her debut novel Nina Is Not Okay. She's Shapi Korsandi. Shapi, welcome. Thank you for having me, Richard. Delighted to have you here. <laughs> now, Shapi, I'll get straight to it. Why did you decide to make the move from comedian to novelist? Well, I'm still a comedian. I'm still a comedian. That's still my my great love and passion and actually addiction. Right. Being a novelist was something I would promised myself. I promised myself I would be when I was about 10 years old. And I have to be honest and say that the solitude of writing was something I wasn't ready to do until this stage in my life. I wanted to be out there. I wanted to be pounding the streets. I did not want to be locked away in a room. Do you relate to that? Absolutely. I've been through the exact same experience. I'm moving swiftly on. How different is it writing a novel compared to writing a sketch show? Well, comedy is something that I think of more than write. I learned quite early on that the best stand-up was when I was out when I was talking to people, when I was partying, you know, things have to happen for you to talk about them. I mean, also with a novel. But this was really sitting at a desk and giving myself from this time to this time. How long was this time to this time? Um, 10 o'clock till 2.30. For how many months? For about a year, but not consistently. Because... um, Obviously, I'm, I'm keeping up my other career, so they'd be travelling to do interviews to do... Are you a procrastinator writer? Horribly. Are you, you doing me up? I was actually diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, um, and it made me a lot less hard on myself because I've learned that I can't go, right, that's it, tomorrow I'm going to do 4,000 words. That doesn't work for me. Tomorrow I might do 500 if I'm lucky. And I think taking that pressure off myself and understanding that my brain doesn't work that way. And I did it. I did it. So Nina is not okay. tells the story of 17-year-old Nina, a teenager whose wild, drunken antics have turned into something far more serious. To the despair of her mum and her stepdad, Alan, she wakes up one morning with a feeling that something very bad has happened to her, though she doesn't know what. Let's meet Nina in an extract from the audiobook of Nina Is Not Okay, which you read yourself. The door opens slowly. Through the fog of poison rising from my sheets and sweating out of my body, I saw my little sister, Katie, peep round the door. Go away, Katie! I managed to croak. It must stink in here. I am revolting. Katie is six and my angel. Katie cannot see me like this. She tiptoes out again. A door slams downstairs. Mum has taken Katie to school. Thank God Alan is in Germany. This would be a serious lecture with slide projectors and guest speakers. I sink back down and lie catatonic in my bed of piss and puke. By noon, I have shuffled downstairs. Pieces of the night have come back to me and I'm filled with shame, so intense. I wonder how I can remain alive. 
I could jump off a cliff. But I've been to Beachyhead. It wasn't all that sheer. It seemed like you'd bounce to death and it would hurt. And I can't cope with that, not with a hangover. I want to pick up a saucepan and hit myself on the head with it so I can get last night out. Those boys and booze, the hard cock in the corner of the club. I want it all out of my head. There is an elephant sitting on my chest and I want to push it off. Shapa, you've mastered the art of describing a hangover. Ooh. Were you writing from your own experience of morning afters? I wish I could tell you that that was all from my imagination. But I've had some pretty dark hangovers and I think that I didn't want it to be a sort of Bridget Jones mm -hmm. type of hangover. It's awful to feel that way. Gruesome. Um, gruesome and it brings up demons that are terribly hard to suppress again and um, just that utter self-loathing. Now the plot of Nina is not okay centres around the blacked out events of this night and the way Nina's life spirals out of control after them. Does the novel have an educational purpose for you? I didn't want to inform at all. While I was writing this there's no part of me that thought let's discuss this. Right. Let's put this out, you know. Um, Professor Shappy. No, I, I didn't. I grew up in the binge drinking generation and I was extremely shy and then I discovered booze. So I had some really terrible times on booze. Not as terrible as Nina, I hasten to add. Mm -hmm. These situations that we have now where people have mobile phones to take pictures, mm -hmm. I thought, how would I have felt at 18 if someone had had a picture of my most excruciating, painful moments when I was so shy that I would get absolutely bladdered and behave in ways that weren't true to myself. And what young people have to deal with now with all of that kind of stuff. So, And there, there are elements of it that are, that are me and going back to that time and trying to make something creative come alive out of all the times I've beaten myself up saying, why did I drink so much when I could have been doing this? You know, I've never been interrailing. <laughs> and now you've written a novel. Shapi, you brought along a number of objects at the Penguin Studio that helped to inspire you as a writer. Your first object takes you back to where it all started. It's a photograph of you at nursery with your brother. Please can you describe what you see in the photograph? Well, let me have a look here in this. I am wearing a very big hairdo. Um, you can barely see my face, but what I can see my face looks exactly like my daughter. I love this photo because I remember not speaking English at this nursery. I remember it very well. It was run by two sisters called Miss King and Miss King. And they were like the first English people that I got to know, really. And they were incredibly kind incredibly posh. Do they know how successful you've been? I don't know. Well, they were very elderly too, oh, and this was quite a while ago. Well, elderly to a, a three-year-old. They're probably yes. like 35, actually. <laughs> they're probably fine. Um, but I remember they, they were extraordinarily kind to us, and it brings back very happy memories of us settling in to England at a very fraught time for our native country, Iran, you know, if I may be self-indulgent, as on. my whole life and career is. Yes. <laughs> um, Welcome to my world. 
I just think it's adorable that I remember not understanding a word of what anyone was saying and now I make my living from the English language. And it just brings back very happy memories and it just reminds me that we were two little Iranian children. That you and Pavan, your brother. Pavan, my brother, who is... Who, who's older. Who's only 16 months older and he was my best friend then and my best friend now. So and no sibling rivalry? Lots of sibling rivalry oh, when we were little, but... Also, the one that will drop everything to run to me when I need anything from kitchen towels to babysitting to (laughs) mending my broken heart. So let's hear from the audiobook again. Here, Nina remembers her father and his own addiction. My own dad died when I was nine. I came home from school one day and found I would never see him again. The living room curtains were closed. This wasn't too unusual because dad was an alcoholic and sometimes a hangover would last longer than the weekend, but this time I sensed something dreadful. I went in and Mum was crying. I wasn't allowed in the living room. There were medics in with Dad. You couldn't always tell he was an alcoholic. He worked, made decent money and he was popular. Dad was loud and lively when he was drunk. He filled the house up with mates from the pub, mates from work, mates from down the road, mates from wherever he'd been and boozed. I loved my dad. I loved being loved by him. He was funny and warm and everyone thought he was like that all the time. There were times, though, when Dad was mad with a hangover, when he would shout at me and Mum over nothing and we'd tread on eggshells around him. When he was growling and mean, Mum would gather me up and take me out and tell me not to bother my dad. Sometimes it would take a few days for him to be nice again. In those few days, he'd go mad at me over something little, like dropping my fork or forgetting to say thank you. When this mood passed, he'd say he was sorry and give me grins and cuddles and Mum and me would be so relieved that Dad was himself again. I could tell by the way he put his key in the door what mood he was in when he got home and whether or not to make myself scarce. When we went out, this big, handsome man who everyone adored, who was popular in the way the drama lot could only ever dream of being, would pull me to him in front of everyone and say, Isn't my princess beautiful? I was special in that room because my dad said so. It was pancreatitis. He was only 37. Heartbreaking extract from Nina is not OK read and written by Shappi Sandy. Shappi, your next object relates to your father and to your Iranian roots. It's your naturalisation certificate. Now, it says... Can we see what it says? Yes. Yeah? Certificate of naturalisation as a British citizen. The Secretary of State in exercise of powers conferred by the British Nationality Act of 1981 hereby grants this certificate of naturalisation to the person named below who shall be a British citizen from the date of the certificate. Full name, Sharparat Korsandi. 2001. I have been natural since 2001. <laughs> so your father was a political satirist, writer, yes. who criticised the Ayatollah. Why have you brought this along today? Let me guess. Well, it's very current, <laughs> the whole situation yeah. with refugees, but I think... In, in the history of mankind, it has always been current. Mm-hmm. And I got refuge in Britain. And this sort of reminds me of of that feeling of being displaced for so long. And because, you know, we 
we always thought we'd go back to Iran because we never thought the regime would last this long. Mm-hmm. And we were always told that, you know, we are Iranian and we will go back to Iran. But now this year will be the 40th year of our Iran air flights from Tehran <laughs> to England. And I feel finally I'm in a place to go, yeah, it's fine. This is home. This is England. This so is- what do you feel? Do you feel dual nationality at all? Do you feel more feel Iranian like, than British? I feel like a Londoner. When first I, and foremost. First and foremost a Londoner. Nationality. Becomes I irrelevant, in it, a sense. It, it can become irrelevant, and it's what you feel you are, and it's for you yourself to pick and choose and decide on. I can't put my finger on why, when I went to Dubai for mm-hmm. a gig, we flew over Iran. Yeah. I can't put my finger logically on why, when I saw those red mountains... I cried. Mm -hmm. I'm crying now talking about it because I'm not allowed to go to that country. And that's where I was born. And 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 a crucial thing about identity and Mm. nationality is the language. I'm fluent in Farsi. When I hear Iranians speak on the news, I know their accents. I can hear their parents. I can hear them calling their children down to tea. And that's what makes you feel like you belong to a space. What you're saying about the geography as well is that that is really home pigeon instinct that you have, that yeah. you feel such a connection with it. You don't need to explain who you are, what yeah, you are. Absolutely. You are that that thing and absolutely. from that place. Yeah, I identify completely you. with that. And the way I look at England and Iran is I have a mother and a father and I love them both equally, but in <laughs> completely different ways. Much of Nina is not OK is about Nina's relationship with her father and coming to terms with his loss. Has your own father been an equally important influence in your life? My dad's been a very powerful influence in my life. He's still around. He's um, 70-something now. We're never quite sure of his age (laughs) because he lived at a time where birth certificates were kind of... Fluid. Yes. I grew up coming down the stairs at two in the morning with my dad at the kitchen table writing with a cigarette in one hand and a shot of vodka. And he was a writer. And he was always writing. When he wasn't partying, he was writing. And that, to me, was the best thing, the most wonderful thing in the world to be. And Um, did he encourage your, your comedy career? Has he been supportive? He's been incredibly supportive in that he never stood in my way. He never said, get a sensible career, which... When I talk to other comedian friends or actor friends, that's actually a glorious thing because not everyone has that experience from their parents. And how did he react to to you when you became a novelist? Just incredibly happy because although he's a writer, he's always said I could never write a novel because that takes far too much concentration. (laughs) You know, he writes satire and poetry. He came to watch me at the Soho Theatre in London uh, last year and that was the first full-on show that he'd seen of mine for years. And that was a real moment because my show is extremely, uh, it had a, it wasn't blue gratuitously, but it had a lot of adult themes in it, which I was slightly awkward about talking about in front of my dad. Luckily, with my dad in the audience, it was the best show I'd ever done. Oh. It was such a relief. So, and afterwards he said, I'm so proud you are a feminist. You dealt with very tricky feminist subjects. I'm so proud. Let's dip back into the audiobook of Nina is Not OK. Here Nina describes the pain of breaking up with her first boyfriend. I had only given a handful of blowjobs before, mostly to Jamie White, my boyfriend. Ex-boyfriend. 
Jamie had left college and gone to live in Hong Kong for a year with his dad. He'd promised he'd write to me every day, but I'd heard nothing. After I'd called and left a million messages and spent huge amounts of time crying to Beth, he'd messaged, eventually saying he'd met another girl out there called Marsha. This had been pretty devastating and so out of the blue. We'd planned a whole future together. I was having issues accepting the breakup, apparently. I'd sent him endless emails. In one, I'd call him a total bastard for five pages. In the next, I'd send him seven pages of how much I loved him, how he was my hero and begging him to call me and get back with me. I'd texted him endless lists of what I missed about him. I miss stuff about you that you don't even know I loved about you. One, the way you text me in the morning to tell me to stop hitting snooze. Two, your Superman pants. Three, your radish and tuna melts. Four, how sweet you always were with your mum when I was always ratty to mine. Five, the way you wrote down each book you lent people and demanded they give it back exactly two weeks later because if they hadn't read it by then, they can sod off. Six, the way you always said, when we have kids, when we go travelling, when we become famous writers. And on and on and on to nothing. No replies. Silence. Then he'd posted pictures of them together on Facebook. Beth had said, well, that's a kick in the cunt. But it hadn't been like that. It had been like a thousand kicks in the cunt and a giant fist around my heart, squeezing until it burst again and again and again. An extract from Nina is not OK, written and read by Shappy Corsandi. Shappy, it's very clear that you had troubled teenage years, so stand-up comedy seems like an unusual career choice for someone who suffered from such insecurity. Why did you want to be on stage? It was what I wanted to do. It was my secret dream, but it seemed as... I didn't say it out loud because it seemed the same as saying, yeah, I want to be an astronaut. Somehow, amidst the insecurity, I knew that if I didn't do it, I would be 40 one day and regret it. And the way I looked at it was my yellow brick road, that I would just go down this yellow brick road and no matter what, I'd just stay on it. So it's interesting because... You sound as though you weren't a confident teenager, but very, very determined that you could do this no matter what. Your yellow big road, follow that. You know, I think I'm lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to, this sounds really like, get the violins out, but I didn't want to be the fat, frizzy-haired girl in the corner anymore. Like, Because I remember I went to a party at university and it was one of those things where you had to know someone at the party to come in. Yeah. And someone came in and they said, um, oh, we know Shappy. And the person at the door went, oh, is that the chubby Asian girl? And I thought, cheers, the chubby Asian girl. And now I just feel like, you know, eat my powder. You know, there is a part of me that is like all those people that ignored you, didn't think you were cool. Now, you know. Success is the best revenge. (laughs) Unfortunately, there is a part of me that just goes, oh, return my emails now, do you? Yes. Um, Write write me a little message on Facebook now, will you? Um, Let's get into contact it is, 30 years later. It is interesting, but th- but then also, just to be a bit kinder, I've learned that I've become more confident, so I'm able to connect with people better socially. Like, I can 
be myself more. And, I, and also, I can admit when I feel shy. If I go to a party now, I can go up to someone and go, I don't know anyone here. Are you friendly? I can do that now. And that comes with age and also that comes with the identity that my job gives me. So reading your audiobook yourself, was that important to you and does it make the novel into more of a performance for you? It was a real challenge for me, actually. I wanted to read it myself because it's my book. Yeah, you want anybody else to get it wrong. Yeah, and and I thought, however it goes, it's still me telling the story or it's Nina telling the story. What I didn't think through was, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a trained actor. <laughs> I've put so many accents in that bloody book. I've got Pakistani, I've got Yorkshire, I've got Irish. Yeah, far too many accents um, for my ability. But I stumbled through them and I'm hoping people who listen to it that are from those accents will forgive me and understand that it's Nina reading it, actually. So Shappy's very good at accents, Nina's not so much. So the next actor from the audiobook of Nina is not okay. Nina discusses the events of that Saturday night with her best friend, Beth. There are no big banners around the canteen announcing what I got up to on Saturday. A relief. Beth said all of this is a feminist issue and I'm not to feel any shame at all and why the fuck should you? She was right on a high horse last night when she came round too. There were two of you in this, the sucker and the sucky. Notice that you got tucked out of the club, not him. Textbook misogyny. She went on and on about the slut-shaming bouncer needing to be sacked. He threw you out. You were drunk and alone. Seriously, we should write and complain. Dear sir or madam, I'm writing to complain about my treatment by your staff on Saturday night. At approximately 11.20pm, I gave a young man I'd just met a blowjob by the downstairs bar. One of your bouncers, I'm afraid I cannot describe him, my vision was blurred, dragged me out and threw me onto the street without giving me a chance to call my mum, tell my friends or finish the blowjob. I feel this action was discriminatory. As the bloke I was noshing off, I'm afraid I did not catch his name, was not asked to leave. Yours sincerely, Nina Swanson. No, I did not feel like complaining. I felt like having another shower and scrubbing my skin with a Brillo pad. Nina worries about everyone in the canteen finding out about what happened, but part of the novel centres around the way teenagers live their lives online and can end up finding their mistakes have been broadcast for the whole world to see. Now, this is an incredibly modern, contemporary pressure. Did you have to do research into stories of online bullying? I have friends who are teachers who discuss with me that that is one of their biggest issues to tackle, online bullying. And the rest of it is in the media. A lot of it is in the media. And I have friends, young female friends, and of course by friends I mean babysitters. Um, I talk to them a lot. Um, and quite a few of them completely opt out of the social networking thing which I find quite interesting. Yeah. They don't... To protect they don't, themselves. Yeah, to protect themselves. and, and De-envy it, their lives. Absolutely. Now, you have two young children yourself and you've said that they're not allowed to read the book until they're 53. Yes. So is it worrying to think of the new pressures that they might face as they grow up? Do you, do you ban social media for them? Oh, yes. And my son's only... Uh, he's, he'll be nine this year, but it's conversations that we've already started to have. I tell him that 
that no matter how friendly someone is online, no matter how long you, you can talk to someone online for years, but unless you know people around them, if you know their circumstances, you don't, you can't trust them. And um, I've had to talk to him about Googling me, you know, yeah. and, and I've had to explain to him that people say mean things because... Trolls. Yeah, trolls. We've had to talk about trolls. And, he goes, and he's like, well, why would they? And I say to him, it's because they don't know me and they're unhappy people mm -hmm. and this is an itch they need to scratch. And I said, the point is you must remember that these people cannot touch you and they do not know you and don't Google mummy. Um, Does that like Bluebeard's castle, that you cannot open this door and all they now want to do is go and Google you? No, because I've got locks on You've his. got locks. Yeah, I've got locks. But, you know, obviously by his teenage years, mm -hmm. they won't be there. And I'm hoping by that time they'll all be so savvy. Now, your next object is... that—that that is I've never seen anything like that coming mm -hmm. to the studio. Could you please describe it? It is a box, listeners. This is a box. This is a... I'm my... so covetous of it, I cannot tell you. <laughs> This is a My Own Morph kit, How to Model Morph. There's a DVD and a piece of morph plasticine. Now, how, Shappy, did you come to have a personalised box from Morph? Well, Morph sent it to me himself. Um, he was a big inspiration to uh, me as a child because he was the first Asian to have made it on mainstream television. Can you take him out of the box? Yes. Please. There he is. This is my own little attempt at making morph. Oh. There's morph. Yes, there's, there's morph. morph. I had the very good fortune of meeting the Ardman animation guys, David Sproxton, Peter Lord. In Bristol. And, yes, in Bristol and Nick Parks. And we were um, doing something together at the Bristol Silent Film Festival. And I'm a big fan of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton and the Slapstick, the Slapstick mm. Festival, I should call it. And I met them and I was so entranced by the fact that I was, oh my gosh, if someone had told me that I would one day meet these guys, I was beside myself. And I told them, look, you know, when I was a kid, I wrote to Morph and he never wrote back. And this is why they're so brilliant at what they create, because it mattered to them that this 10-year-old kid in the 80s didn't get a letter back. And David was saying to, to his wife, she didn't Morph, he, he should have written back. They normally write back with utmost seriousness. Aww. And then I got back to London and a few days later, Morph himself had signed um, Hi Shappy with Love from Morph and a little cartoon of Morph and it's my absolute treasured possession. It means the world to me. I could cry looking at it. It's That's a fantastic story. It just feels like they gave me a piece of my childhood back. They have. Let's hear from the audiobook of Nina is Not OK one last time. In this next extract, Nina finds herself at her first AA meeting. Everyone in room nine understands or is trying to understand that acting on our own will is wrecking us. We have to let go of it because, frankly, it's bad for us. The energy in the room changes with each different voice that pipes up. A woman tells us she pissed herself on the Piccadilly line. A man talks about how often he's cheated on his wife. People say out loud things that bring them shame and pain. Being with other alcoholics is a relief I did not know existed. Drinking on my own, the humiliation and chaos, it was like the end of me. I was nothing. A piece of dog shit on someone's shoe, some rancid old whore. I couldn't cuddle my baby sister because I felt too dirty. Here, shame is not who you are. 
A woman with a sweet, round face jumps in. She looks 30-something and is dressed quite smartly. She's been trying to get in and talk for ages. Hello, she says. I'm Isla and I'm an alcoholic. My new roommate is not a tramp with missing teeth as I had feared. She seems really sweet, soft-spoken and gentle. She cries and the bloke next to her in motorcycle leathers reaches out and gives her shoulder a squeeze. Near the end of the hour, the chairperson says, The last few minutes are reserved for newcomers. If you're a newcomer or a shy sharer, we invite you to share. Now there is utter silence. I'm the newcomer. The silence gets louder. I'm the only one allowed to speak. It seems weird and rude if I don't. But what do I say? My cheeks burn. My eyes sting. But at last I hear my own voice admit the truth to a room full of strangers. Hi. I'm Nina. And I'm an alcoholic. Shappy, you've mentioned that you had issues when you were a teenager. Did you think that you wanted to give a voice to victims when you were writing it? That was really emotional hearing that that particular excerpt actually. And I don't know if it when I said I think I got a bit teary as I read it in the last line. My own compulsive behaviours and addictions started when I was in my teens and my life changed when I was thirty one, thirty two, when I went to the rooms. I went to um a twelve step And so this part of the book, I would not have guessed this in my book. I I, I made up the um, experiences of the other addicts, but the atmosphere and that feeling of um, being amongst people who, where where, where you didn't feel isolated, feeling... And not judged. And not judged and not having to explain... Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, as, as, I've, as I've said in the book, I, I found it a relief I didn't know existed. And it changed my life, like completely changed my life. It, I came out of a fog and it's still, you know, an ongoing process. And yeah, so that, that was my own experience that I did massively draw on. <laughs> yeah. Chappie, your book is warm and very funny, but also extremely sinister and dark. Was that a difficult balance to achieve? It's it's a really strange thing. It it wasn't until I heard other people's reactions to it mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I read it out loud that even I myself realised... The full impact. The full impact. You know, I wasn't weeping as I wrote it or anything like that. Put it like this. When my partner read extracts of it to check it over, to give me feedback, he kept saying... You know when you do this, yeah. and I go and say, "It's not me. It's not me. It's Nina." Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't be truthful if I said a lot of it wasn't drawn on um, personal experience that was amplified and actually sometimes toned down. Yeah, that's well. what makes it so good. Thank you. Yeah, and authentic. Thank you. And that's well, what we're all looking for. The authentic experience. Hearing you say authentic makes me very happy. No, no, it's, uh, you know, I recognise it absolutely coming from a long line of alcoholics. I wow. know this world very, very well. We've come to your final object. This represents one of your comedy heroes and mine. It's a Charlie Chaplin toy doll. Yes. 
When did your love affair with Charlie Chaplin first start? Charles Spencer Chaplin is somebody who I... I, um, I don't know if this is too personal. You might have to edit him out. Go on. But I don't believe in God. And in the 12 steps, you have to have a higher power. Charlie's yours. My higher power is Charlie Chaplin. How perfect. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so whenever I did my meditation, I would think of Charlie. Whose father was an alcoholic. Whose father was an alcoholic. Yeah. And um, mother had lots of issues. Mental health issues. Mental health issues. Charlie Chaplin was introduced to me by my father, all the silent films. And I watched The Great Dictator when I was probably about 12 or 13. And I know The Great Dictator isn't regarded as one of the best films, but for me it's my favourite film because it was the first piece of art that really opened my eyes to suffering and to the Holocaust and to what happened. And I, I remember that was such a powerful film in my life and, and yeah, it absolutely drummed into me the power of art and also, I get really upset with people who say, yeah, but it wasn't funny. I can't be friends with people who say Charlie Chaplin wasn't funny because they're the same sort of people that say, yeah, but women aren't funny. And I always say to them, which female comic have you seen? And they can't name one. <laughs> Likewise with people who say Chaplin isn't funny. I said, oh, which, which film turned you off? They can't name a single Chaplin no. film. It's like that other old chestnut. I'm not a racist, but... Absolutely. And they launch. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Um, he famously said, life is a tragedy when seen in close-up, but a comedy in long shot. How far do you agree with Charlie Chaplin's philosophy? Every step of the way. Every step of the way. Every step of the way. Shappy, thank you very, very much. This thank you. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you, likewise. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and head over to iTunes to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast, yours forever. And feel free to leave us a review or rating. We'd love to hear what you think. From Penguin Random House Audio. Moranifesto by Caitlin Moran is an engaging and amusing rallying call for our times. Combining the best of her recent columns with lots of new writing unique to this book, Caitlin deals with topics both pressing and diverse and is never afraid to address the big issues of the day, such as Benedict Cumberbatch and Duffelcoats. Caitlin makes a passionate effort to understand our 21st century society as she presents us with her Moranifesto for making the world a better place. The polite revolution starts here. Please. Until I was 18, I don't think I'd ever spent more than four hours on my own. There were eight children, two adults and three large, demented Alsatian dogs in our house, and so learning how to cope when alone was a skill I never really had the chance to develop. Not even when on the toilet where the shower curtain could suddenly and dramatically be pulled back, revealing three children staring at you from a bath full of matey. Perhaps that explains why I'm traumatised by it now. I don't know what to do when I'm alone. My husband went away with the kids for the weekend, leaving me to hit a big deadline. After doing my traditional farewell, standing in the doorway wailing, Don't go! I cannot tolerate the loneliness! Do not leave me or I will die! I will literally die! I went back into the silent, empty old house and turned into someone completely different. You're different when you're alone. Well, I am. There's a whole other me that lives a whole other life when I'm the only one around. Obviously, I smoke in the kitchen, watch the Antiques Roadshow. Mum, this is boring. It's just a man saying a chair is old. 
and live on the sofa, slowly building a castle wall of dirty cereal bowls and teacups while wearing a dressing gown that is so repulsively stained and funky that I now fear putting it in the washing machine lest it make the drums smell forever. Essentially, as all people on their own are apt to do, I turn into the dude from The Big Lebowski, but without his rigorous sporting lifestyle, bowling while drinking beer and eating chips. However, in addition to all my quotidian lonely behaviours, there are several other things I do when I'm alone which are a bit more... specialist. Moranifesto by Caitlin Moran is available now on iTunes and Audible.